Welcome to the 1823 podcast from Liverpool John Moores University. In this episode, we're asking what disability means in 2021, especially when it comes to hidden disability. I'm Karen Coney, and I'm a careers and employability consultant here at LJMU. I'm also a part-time PhD student based at the University of Birmingham and I'm exploring what can be done to support autistic students to progress successfully to employment when they graduate. My name is Jack Fitzpatrick. I'm a third year student at Liverpool John Moores University studying education studies and inclusion and I'm currently the um, director of Inclusive Environments Limited, a diversity and inclusion consultancy company. I'm Phil Vickerman, Pro Vice-Chancellor for Strategic Initiatives and I'm also a Professor of Inclusive Education and Learning. I'm Laura Knowles and I'm currently a third year mental health nursing student and the outgoing part-time officer for disabilities. It's Disability History Month so we're going to be talking about what disability means in 2021. But first of all, let's explain a little bit about our own circumstances. Now who would like to go first? Me, apparently. Yes. <laughs> um, Over to you, Laura. So I um, actually joined the army from uh, high school. Um, joined as a musician with the band of the Welsh Guards. Served for just under five years. Um, but whilst I was in the army, I experienced a few things. It wasn't combat related, but I experienced a few things that brought on different mental health issues. Um, and that kind of led to a, a medical discharge. Right. Um, so initially it was kind of, it was, it was a bit weird and a bit hard to like, get my head around everything that had happened. And I wouldn't have considered myself as like having a disability or being disabled in any way. It was just mm. one of those things. Mm. Um, but then in 2016, I took part in the Invictus Games. Um, they were out in, in Florida and it was an amazing experience and it kind of, kicks all my life again really um, but I met a lot of other other veterans and other serving pers- personnel who had all sorts of like whether it be physical injuries mental health issues um, mm. whatever it was and just kind of brought things into context and I was able to learn a lot more about me like learn more about what you know what I was going through and like how to like overcome it um, and then when I kind of came back from that. I took like a lot of work on like therapies, like different medications, like a lot of input mm-hmm. from services. And like, I realized that that's where my passion was. Like I was passionate about mental health. And, you know, through the army, I did experience like some discrimination, like a lot of stigma, like, you know, that, that's still around today, but it really made me passionate about wanting to help people and trying to like dispel some of that stigma. Um, so that's kind of why I'm on the course now. Like I want to be a mental health nurse and like I'm absolutely loving it and like the amount of opportunities I've had to be able to to make a difference, whether it's just in an individual life or, you know, making bigger changes either at university or in placement, like wherever that is, like I just I love it. I've definitely found like my calling in life now, this is where I should be. Um but I actually also just found out um earlier this year actually that I'm autistic as well. So didn't realise for ages Mm. Um, and I actually think some of the mental health problems that were diagnosed were actually misdiagnosed 
because right. autism is like very easy to miss mm. in females, um, particularly people who don't have a comorbid learning disability. So, yeah, I'm just trying to get my head around that at the minute and kind of make my way around. But yeah, that's me. Thank you. That's that's a lot that you've been through, a lot of a long way that you've travelled <laughs> over the, over yeah. the last number of years. But fantastic, you've had a chance to get involved in in other things whilst you've been here at university. It'd be definitely good to hear a bit more about that in a minute. Um, if, if, shall I pass on to so that we can hear a bit more um, from, from one of you two? Is that all right, Phil or, yes, or Jack? Um, so myself, I've had a um, disability of autism and dyspraxia and had an early diagnosis from the age of three. I've been very fortunate to have brilliant support over the years from people such as Lorraine Bradbury, a learning support assistant who uh, helped me when I was at school, and of course my parents who have allowed me to reach my full potential. Um, My disabilities have have given me many barriers to overcome over the years. I finished Kingsmead School with eight GCSEs, which people, um, when I was younger, did not think that I would achieve, as my disabilities were so profound that I could not sit upright on a chair when I was younger. But through intensive support from my LSA, Lorraine Bradbury, I was able to develop my coordination and sit upright, as, um, as well as thriving in the classroom with her support. So once I... Um, finished Kingsmead, so I was there from the age of three to sixteen, uh, which was a long time to be to be in a, in a school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the transition um, coming out of Kingsmead, going into Birkenhead Sixth Form College, um, was uh, daunting really because we didn't we didn't know both myself and my parents and also the support around me what was the next mm-hmm. step. And so. Really, it was when they introduced educational healthcare plans from statements. So I was one of the first um, statement um, statements transitions to educational healthcare plan plans in the Wirral. Um, and so once that had been carried out and and was very thorough the document, um, I then I then transitioned over to Beckham Sixth Form College to do my A levels, and. Um, and I had some fantastic support um, from different LSAs there as well, uh, learning support assistants, such as Barbara Campbell, who um, escorted me on many different trips to London <laughs> and um, also to uh, debating competitions, which I was part of um, the debate team during my time there. And uh, when during my final year of of A-levels um, and the college, I was approached to uh, apply to... Uh, be head student at the at the college, but when my application went in, I was offered a um, alternative role as a disabil- disabled student representing students with disabilities at a high level within the college. So um, I was liaising regularly with senior management, um, going backwards and forwards between them. But also, it's the small things that that really made an impact towards towards the people that were with were with disabilities in the college. So for instance, a young boy who was hearing impaired um, approached me on the first day um, of his college experience and uh, he said to me, I can't read the menus. I can't read them because it's too small font for me. So for instance, I went straight up to marketing and asked, could we enlarge the menus? And it's just small recommendations like that that improves the experience massively. And it's um, it's very important that I think those those small 
impacts can can really change people people's experiences um, and so the college have continued this role onwards um, because it was originally a pilot project because they'd never done anything like that before and so again when I finished um, finished college I, I had three A-levels and the transition we were unsure about but the transition to university has been fa- has been fantastic for me because the disabled students allowance has really supported me very very well i've had note takers i've had mental health support i've had academic support and also taxis to get me to and from the university every day as well because i'm not confident going out on my own uh, and accessing the community and so um everything that i've asked for has been catered for uh, through ljmu and also disabled students allowance and has been absolutely brilliant um, so during the time that I've been at John Moores, um, I'm sitting on the Accessibility and Inclusive Digital Environments Committee with Phil Vickerman, as well as the Steering Committee for Disabled Students, in which we're planning an event later this month, um, as well as becoming a student representative, a peer mentor and a student um, student ambassador. And during that time as well, I've been very fortunate um, because I've worked on placement with Aggregate Industries, a multinational construction company, um, who have changed their approach to diversity and inclusion and support of people within the workplace. Um, And this was as part of my uh, university degree. I had to do this placement for three weeks. But consequently from that, um, the recommendations have now been implemented within the organisation, such as Sunflower Lanyard. Um, for unseen and hidden disabilities and it's made a positive impact in, uh, to shape the culture and I've also been on an internship with them throughout throughout the summer this year um, that's great, <laughs> that's really good yeah. so <laughs> that's it really um, thank you, yeah, yeah. brilliant um, Phil are you okay if I hand over to you? <laughs> yeah my experience um, of, of disability and, and difference really goes back to my childhood Particularly, um, I'll talk a little bit about myself, Um, but my dad used to work with adults with learning disabilities, and this was sort of 30, 30, 40 years ago, when uh, people with learned disabilities would reside in long-stay hospitals. So, you know, we're, we're very much out of sight, out of mind. But I had the opportunity, you know, with my dad, um, when he was in work, of of going in and um, spending time, um, all sorts of leisure activities with with adults with learned disabilities. And my sort of interest or my um, sort of passion really started um, from from there. Um, And also throughout my dad's working life, actually seeing um, the move to the more the sort of social model of disability mm-hmm. and seeing um, people with learned disabilities moving out into community-based settings and um, some of the challenges uh, with that and some of the you know some of the opportunities as well so my sort of personal engagement sort of mm-hmm. interest stemmed from my childhood childhood I was yeah. I was sort of brought up alongside lots of um, people with learning difficulties so it's always been something that's been of interest to me and you know has followed into followed into my career um, where 
I was um, very interested. Um, I, I, I trained in sport, physical activity. Um, I was very interested in working in disability sport, um, coaching um, Paralympic athletes through um, to um, people just coming and having you know an opportunity to um, engage in sport. Uh, so that that's my my a bit of my my career. Um, I also did a lot of work um, in schools and training training teachers um, and how to ensure that the teachers created inclusive, accessible lessons so that young people weren't isolated. So I sort of came at it partly from a professional but also a, a sort of personal angle. But there's two other bits to my my story. One is that my son was diagnosed with ADHD around about the age of three, four, and ADHD is a, a very broad term, and you know it can coexist with lots of other needs um, and disabilities. And you know over over his, I mean he's nearly thirty now, but you know going through school. Um, and seeing, you know, some of the challenges, um, I've, I've, I think I've I've seen it from sort of a personal sort of perspective as a parent, as well as being on the other side of trying to advise students. But some of the difficulties that he's had in education, getting into jobs, um, he now has epilepsy as well. So um, you know the com- complexity. So I've seen it from that perspective. Personally, as well, one one of the things that I've probably become more aware of over the last five to ten years is is a, a greater awareness of my mental health and I've struggled with my mental health in the past I didn't know it was mental health I didn't really know what was wrong with me at times or people would put it down to oh you're not very confident or you know you're not feeling you know you have low self-esteem etc um, and it was by chance that I had a conversation with someone and actually found that it was more likely to be recurrent depression that I have. So I've, you know, I've, I've had support. Um, there's been times when it's been, you know, been challenging, but also um, embracing mental health for me has been something that has been really, really positive. And, you know, I've been in a position where I've been able to use that and actually recognise some of the challenges of your disability actually can be also a positive as well so uh yeah that's that's me thank you that's really helpful to think of that as well and think you know yeah what are the positives are there Mm. are there um things that we can see that we gain from from a disability or a health Mm. condition as well thank you um so just um just myself then um I have, um, in a previous role when I was a careers consultant at another university, I was asked to, um, I became the the, um, specialist in supporting students with disability in terms of their career. Um, And actually this soon became my favorite part of of the job. As I saw, there are some real barriers, some real challenges for students seeking to access the workplace. And then, you know, when they graduate particularly. And so, um, this led to me starting to think about research in this area and also thinking what can be done and exploring supported work placements, mentoring schemes and so on. And um, so when I came to, to John Moore's um, two and a half years ago, I was really eager to, to kind of set up similar work and carry on the work here. And um, 
and had recently started a PhD um, looking particularly at autistic students and what can be done um, because um, I'd, I'd learned I'm on a, a national um, group and we look at the graduate outcomes for disabled individuals every year and we found that of, of all disabled groups those with autism um, struggle the most to secure employment and um, and I just thought something needs to be done about this. I want to find out more about what can be done as a, as a careers practitioner in a university. So I, um, yes, have, have embarked on that. And um, Laura and Jack have, have um, very kindly acted as um, student consultants for, for the project. And that's, I, and so I, I was very keen to have a participatory um, element to that, thinking actually, you know, I really want to hear from people and hear what's what's going to be useful. What, what how can this be done better? And um, so their voices have, and actually, I have to say, involving um, the consultants has been the best part. <laughs> I've I've just really enjoyed that. But also, it's given me confidence to think as a practitioner, I I I feel that I'm you know I know more about what is working and that actually what we're, what we're doing is is um, is going to be more helpful as well. So it's, it's been good and um, really good to hear about how some of the impact of being involved as consultants is, is kind of um, helped help people to um, in themselves as well. But I think the other final thing I want to say about my own experience is actually that um, I've recently developed a disability. Um, so during lockdown, the GPs tell me it was probably COVID. It was before there were any tests and uh, any way of diagnosing. I didn't have any other symptoms, but I, um, I, I suddenly lost my hearing in my right ear and uh, found out nine months later, so just a few months ago, that this is permanent and, uh, and now we're a hearing aid. And um, it's been interesting, actually, sort of developing a, a disability. Um, and um, I think to start with, and I think during it, during a pandemic, you think, well, actually, it could be much worse. You know, you hear of people who've had much worse, but actually it's been since coming back to the workplace in the last couple of months that I've had senses of, a sense of loss about it because I'm realizing that, you know, whereas at home in a quiet place, it, was, it wasn't that bad, but actually, um, you know, coming into the busy workplace, loud carriages and, you know, people on trains or people in noisy lecture theatres, actually, I, I struggle a bit. And um, so I think it's, it's a process for me that I'm, I'm working through. But um, one of the things that has struck me thinking about positives is actually I used to have sympathy for some of the students that I'd be seeking to support. I feel like I'm moving on towards empathy and, and because actually I now... I get it a little bit more that frustration when you can't engage as much as you want to and and you have to fight that whole feeling of feeling what well, poor me and you know that kind of you know you're sort of dealing with that just sense that sense of loss as I said and and just uh, or that sense of frustration at things not being as easy for you as they might be for others and and as I, as I said I know that peop, so many people have it much worse but but it's been an interesting kind of mix of feelings and emotions um I have to say one of the things that's been great um but coming back is um, and I'm not just saying this because we're doing this with John Moores, but support from a, you know, some of my managers um, has been super. And the disability, the staff network, the staff disability network have been so welcoming. Um, and uh, so that's something that exists here at the university just for staff. And um, it has it has been really good. They have a Teams group. People are just on it chatting and you feel part of a community of people who maybe get some of that, that emotion. And, and that's been that's been really helpful as well. I feel like we should move on to maybe just thinking about um, Disability History Month 
and just, yeah, particularly why it's important. So this podcast was set up to coincide with the start of, of, of Disability History Month. Phil, do you mind if I start with you, just some thoughts on this? Yeah, Disability History Month for, for me, I mean, it's not just something that, you know, we're doing as a, as a university, you know, it's a national initiative. You know, it, it shines a light and a focus on, you know, issues of disability and, and particularly um, you know the the theme of this year is around hidden impairments, but I do think you know in busy lives that we all have, and you know we we'll talk about inclusivity, diversity, etc., as part and parcel of maybe our day to day sort of experience, but actually stopping almost and actually focusing in on and really understanding and listening um, to some of the things that we've shared. Um, as part of this podcast about the impact that, that disability can have on people's lives, their relationships, their you know, educational development, etc., etc., I think is really important. And one of the thing that, things that I think is really important about Disability History Month for, for us at the university is, is listening you know, to our students, listening to our staff, also listening to our our communities you know who support people um, with a whole range of um, of disabilities so I think it's important we focus it's important we do listen and actually giving people a voice and Karen what you were saying actually I think is, is you know is, is feeling comfortable and confident to talk around about disability and difference you know it's very it's empowering and think the more conversations that we have, maybe the more people um, would feel comfortable to um, to speak about it. But also, um, I think it, it, it's about what can we do as a university um, in terms of our, our policies, our processes, some of the um, things in terms of how we support um, our employees, how we support our students. Mm-hmm. But also importantly, some of the very small things that we can do that can be actually very very impactful you know with our whether that's with our students or with our staff so um yeah it's it's a really important focus um and you know it's an opportunity to to celebrate uh, mm-hmm. disability and you know i think that's something that you know we don't necessarily you know do enough of as well i think uh, disability history month like phil just said it, it, it's a national thing like it's not just within university it's a chance for us as well to like sit and reflect on where we've come from and in terms of equality and inclusion and you know Phil you were saying before about you and your dad working with people learn disabilities or mental illness and you know they were very much hidden away mm-hmm. you know people didn't want to mm-hmm. like recognize them they didn't want to involve them they just want to kind of shut them away and like lead them to it and then that was it and you know it shouldn't be like that but realistically, that wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. And so we need to be able to take this time and be like, you know what, that wasn't that long ago. Yeah. But, you know, this is how far we've come, but this is how much further we still have to go and what can we do to get there? And whether that's as like an individual, as a university, as a society, this is our chance to... I mean, obviously, this should be done <laughs> throughout, yes. throughout the year, but... It is, it is a chance to be able to reflect on that and, you know, like Phil said, you know, where can we go? How can we keep improving this? How can we keep, you know, you know helping people with disabilities or... Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, really, yeah, definitely. <laughs> as, as Laura just said that, with hidden impairment being 
one of the key themes that is being focused on. Neurodiversity is often forgotten or classed yeah. as hidden or an unseen disability. Um, there was an article that was written re- uh, in 2017 by the Harvard Business Review, and they wrote it about neurodiversity, calling it a competitive advantage. Um, and they, they studied SAP, Ernest Young, Hewitt-Packard, and other major multinational corporations and they use a merged example of one person saying when their shoelaces are tied tight they're 10% more productive than any other Mm -hmm. person within the organization or the coding teams but when they're undone they're not productive so it's it's making accommodation for those types of people that have got additional needs like myself in the workplace mm. uh, especially Karen knows it with with yeah. her research that she's been conducting but it's becoming more and more accepted with neurodiversity to become uh, more prominent in the workplace and uh, especially as this is an untapped talent pool of people who mm. have some of the brightest minds and if you look at for instance Turing and Vice mm. Admiral Nick Hine who's just recently admitted that he's he's yeah. He's got a diagnosis of autism, but actually helps him. Um, and these minds are brilliant and, and have contributed to huge developments in history or in the military or, or things like that. It's very important to consider that as well, taking it out from an educational context. But in terms of an educational context, um, it's important that we consider it at LJMU as well. So, for instance, I know that there's the sunflower lanyard that's being integrated quite quickly because because of covid with mm. mask wearing exemptions but this is a discrete symbol to show that you need a bit more time and because of that it's important and culture shifts can happen um as well as increased tolerance so it's very important to consider neurodiversity and hidden disabilities within both the workplace and an educational context Yes, definitely, definitely. And I think neurodiversity, which is a sort of an umbrella term used for, as you've, as you've alluded to, you know, sort of um, those with autism, ADHD, mental health in its broadest definition of, of you know, or any way that, um, that a, a, you know, someone's um, thinking and brain might be just work just slightly differently from what is seen as that, that awful term neurotypical is actually what is neurotypical is anyone neurotypical but just this understanding that difference there's difference there's not right and wrong there's not able and less able there's just difference and so I, I really like the term neurodiverse for, for those reasons and and you're quite right to to say that there's this real recognition now about that that change in thinking that that actually you know difference can be really good for an organization and some employers are starting to to work really you know and sort of I think just to work differently particularly in terms of their recruitment process so SAP and, and EY are starting to look at alternatives to the interview process um, because interviews aren't helpful as a way for everyone to showcase what they have to offer to an employer um, so that some people um, can you know sort of um, struggle you know say with eye contact or just with being put under pressure of having to think of the answer straight away but um, EY and Young had actually do a, a super week now where they, they invite sort of their shortlisted candidates in for a week and um, to observe them over that period of time actually working on projects and, and how they were, interact with each other 
other in and and choose candidates from from there and i just think that's just so good to be thinking of alternatives um alternatives that can remove barriers and um for people but um so yes thank you um for mentioning that i i really like about Disability History Month, the, the whole, what, what you said, Phil, at the beginning about, and, and you've just mentioned, Laura, about changes in terms of how people are treated. And it does come back to that sort of the original medical model where people were labelled yeah. with, this is what's wrong with you. This is why you can't do this or that. Um, and moving on from that to the social model where it's recognised actually a person is disabled by their surroundings, by the environment that they are situated in. And uh, so what can be done about that? And I think it's fantastic that universities, for example, are, um, I know the Office for Students has been um, putting um, sort of guidance and information out there about um, how universities are to, um, to, to adopt the social model as a way of removing the barriers from out there. Laura, you look like you want to add something to this. You say, we're not quite there yet, are you about to say? Uh, yeah, yeah we, and we are great. not quite there yet. I think, mm-hmm. like you said, the Office of Students are, are trying to push it. I think they've actually put funds away to move towards a more social model. Um, you know, I think, to be fair to a lot of universities, like, hands are tied, you know, in terms of funding. Cause if you look at DSA, something Jack mentioned the other day, like, before, it was around, you know, it, it, it's a government-funded kind of scheme where you're offered that support because of a disability, but to to meet that, you have to have a diagnosis. You have to right. be able to, um, you know, show how that affects you, and you can only really do that with notes from your GP or a substantial like, evidence, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it, it hands are very much tied, but I think you know there are ways that you can kind of bypass that in a way and provide a more like social model kind of experience mm-hmm. at a university level so you you, you are going to have to you know jump through hoops unfortunately in terms of like the government like external like sources like dsa but um we actually attended the nus liberation conference in february this year i believe it was um and the liberation conference is around like the, the national union of students and it's for the minority groups so disability BAME networks women's international students they kind of all mm-hmm. come together and discuss you know what the problems are that keep coming up in different universities and and we actually submitted a, a policy this year wow. um and it was around exactly that it was moving away from a medical model and towards a more social model so you know there are things that can be implemented for example like having access to, to course materials before the, the lecture actually happens. So if someone's right. dyslexic, maybe they have a chance to read through it or like have, have support by reading through it or, you know, or whatever it is that, you know, someone might struggle with. But what that also means is for people who, you know, don't want to disclose disability for whatever reason, whether that's, you know, stigma or like self-stigma or whether, you know, mental health is very much it's quite transient so you know you can have a particularly um depressive episode but you might not meet the criteria of having a, de- a depression diagnosis and so you're not going to meet the, the criteria of having a disability right and so you're not then going to be able to access that support but by m- making those things accessible for everyone you're going to be able to cater for a lot more students and be able to offer a lot more support that a lot of students will benefit from so i think the social model is definitely something that we're, we are aiming towards and so it's a work God. in progress. Yes, that's great. It, you were involved in this um, as in your part-time disability officer role. Is that right? So part of um, JMSU. 
Is that right? That when yeah. you were developing the policy and going to this so, conference, t- do tell us a bit more because it sounds like you've been doing yeah. some fantastic work. <laughs> um, so we we kind of got together as, as disability part time officers and kind of discussed, you know, what we would like to take forward to the conference. Um, from my point of view, as a disability part time officer, it was definitely around disclosure and you know how can we support students because you know they may have had experiences prior to university that will we'll stop them disclosing they might not even think that they have a disability they might not meet the criteria of disability you know and yeah the support's out there but they can't access it and so like how do we then change that and make sure that the support is available to anyone who needs it uh, it was actually <laughs> during the time um, I, I actually had COVID in February and one of, oh. for some reason, one of the random symptoms I had was insomnia. Oh, um, no. So I was up all, all hours in the night and I was just thinking about it, was just kind of going through my head. And when I was researching it, like the social model just made so much more sense. So like, um, I wrote the policy um, that, that night and sent it off to Jamie. She was like, what, what do you think? Um, and they're like, sound yeah um, <laughs> great <laughs> how about you, you've done our job for us like sound so we obviously presented it to the the other part-time officers make sure they were happy with what we were going to be submitting as a, a john moore's policy and then we presented to all the other universities who were present um thankfully via via zoom because <laughs> that was a lot of people <laughs> but it was great because it was it was a chance to be able to discuss people with, with people from other universities and you know kind of tweak it a little bit you know like improve it and have like other input and try and make it a like a, a positive impact i've been informed that the policy has been accepted and it is something that will be you know kind of rolled out and looked at and like expanded um but we're still kind of waiting on what right. that's going to look like and how it's going to work but that's great very news. exciting and, and thinking about positives coming out of challenging situations to do that whilst having covid <laughs> and uh, it sounds amazing <laughs> yeah i'm one of those people i'm like right do things like <laughs> can't sit still that's great i can i just say i think the social model of, of disability is, is is something you know it is developing um all the time but it's a battle and it's a continual battle isn't it that you know, to going back to the medical model, it, you know, it, it's owned by the individual. It's their problem. You know, their yeah. their disability. They need to change or adapt to fit into our world. Whereas, you know, the social model of disability is actually saying, well, that inability in some ways to be able to be included, it's nothing to do with that individual's disability. Yes. It's very much about you know the organisation, you as an individual. Um, some of the some of the work I've I've done around research in in teacher training in particular and with physical education teachers, that you know looking at why do children with special educational needs and disabilities sometimes struggle in physical education, and actually having the conversation with the teacher, well actually they're struggling because you're not differentiating, you're not adapting what you know it, mm. what what they need to do. And also assessment. I think assessment is another yeah. thing. Going back to what you were saying, Karen, about you know interview and recruitment and mm. selection, that you know, if we were to ask people, you demonstrate your knowledge, your experience in whatever way you want to do, you know, for some people sitting down, you know, formal face-to-face interview may well work for other people it may well be something very very different but you know is it you know how important is it that we have to assess people or measure people in you know all the same ways and I know that's very much something that sort of education has sort of moved to 
but you know the social model of disability for me is, is is something that and this is where the disability history month is so important because it gets us to look at where are the organizational barriers but um, mm. what can we do to actually change things and move things on as well yes yes no absolutely i think um one thing um, my one of my phd supervisors actually a professor and has, has, has done quite a lot in the in the area and sort of thinking about um all of this and she is sort of actually saying we should go one step further than the social model and and um with something called slightly long-winded uh, biopsychosocial and then yeah model and even adding biopsychosocial inside a model and the idea with that is that the social model is fantastic in terms of that you know many of the barriers are out there but we need to remember that that sometimes there are biological um sort of elements um that ha- impact on a person and they can affect affect a person psychologically as well which is the psycho part of the of the title and so actually we need to think about people holistically so that we are thinking about how can we remove any barriers out there but also think about how the environment impacts on them um, their, their needs, their condition, and also their, them psychologically. And the insider part is where we actually consult with the people <laughs> themselves, um, that actually it's only that, that person who is an expert in their own disability or health condition, and so this needs to happen. And, and I think the more I've thought about this, um, the more I think absolutely that has to be the case. I mean, that's a massive part of it, like that inside of it. Like, it, it, it's such an important, like, an important thing. And it's, it's so mm-hmm. one of those seemingly obvious things, but it's so overlooked. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, if you take autism as an example, it can affect so many different people in so many different ways. So how can you put in, like, reasonable adjustments for autism by itself without actually thinking, well, okay, Jack is, is autistic, I'm autistic, so how can it... But we're two different people. Like, you, yeah. you need to be able to consult with people. And I think that, you know, it, it's the most important part. <laughs> like, if you can't talk yes. to someone and you know have that willingness to learn about them and you know what's actually going to help them the whole thing isn't gonna and gonna work to be fair it's a not one size fits all yeah, approach massively. really it should be taken as an individual uh, individualized approach towards that those disabilities particularly as there's such a broad spectrum um of particularly autism uh, and the way in which that presents from from quite extreme to uh, and quite severe to to, to quite limited uh, symptoms and things like that. Yes. So, so depending on that, there's quite a broad spectrum of interventions, and also support models mm-hmm. in place for those for those people. For myself, it's more like note takers and, and supporting the classroom and, and some social support as well. But mm-hmm. but for others, it's more practical support like like um carers and, and and different things like that so there's there's quite a broad spectrum yes i think the the, the sort of reductionist model almost down you know and i've i've seen this in you know working working with a lot of teachers as well that they they want an easy win or an easy solution mm. so you know it's tell me how to teach children with down syndrome or mm. tell me how to teach you know children who have a hearing impairment mm. well you know, it, it, it isn't, you know, as simple as that. You know, it is very much about having the conversations with people as well. And, um, you know, as you say, you know, individuals are the expert on their disability. And, you know, research I've done again in, in children with special educational needs and teacher training, you know, there's been extensive literature reviews done that there's loads of um, research done on 
teachers and how teachers can adapt what they're doing to include people. Very little about letting the children have the say or giving voice to disabled people. And you know, then we need to have more and more of that. That's the starting point yeah. with this. It, it seems as if the voice of the individual sometimes goes unheard. Yeah. And that's not right really because recent policy has now brought that to become really important such as the Children and Families Act 2014 says that you should be listening to the views of the child as well as considering that of the parents and the educators as well so it's on an equal level playing field when constructing an educational health care plan for support for individuals with additional needs. I think that's that's a really important step, mm. Jack, in, in, in schools that, you know, it, it, it used to be very much about an educational assessment of, you know, a young person and there wasn't any relationship to social well-being, health well-being, but connecting all of those now, mm. you know, to actually look at someone holistically um, and all the different support, but also the way that you know, disability can impact is 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 really important, mm. yes. and you know it's it's long overdue that we start Definitely. moving in that direction. Yeah. So thinking about John Moore's, then, if we're thinking that perhaps the insider voice, if we're calling it that, um, needs to be heard more or consulted more or heard more loudly, what could we do here? Well, perhaps maybe acknowledging good practice that is happening. I mean, the, there are good practices that are happening, like you said, and I think it's important to try and raise awareness of them um for example i know we have a disability students uh, network which mm. is chaired by the disability part-time officer and um, my terms ended now has been handed over to, to someone else but you know that's a great chance to be able to one meet other people in similar situations like I think peer kind of support is, is a massive thing as well mm. because you like you said before you've got that level of empathy there yeah. um which can go a long way but you do have the disability part-time officer themselves you know when they're there to make sure that your voice is heard if you've got any kind of concerns or even if something's going well and you want to be like you know what that was awesome let's mm-hmm. keep doing that you know that's why we're there you know that yes. they're the kind of comments that we want to hear we want to hear how we can make it better or, you know what's going well so we can continue doing that and then we can make sure that we're able to pass it on to the right people so those things need to be put in place or stay in place and i mean yes. obviously we've got the disability support services as well yes um and uh, mental health and counseling services mm. and there's a lot of support out there and i think it's just making people aware of how to access it, I think, is a big one. That's really helpful. As well as the um, disability coordinators for each faculty as well. Um, That's very important. They're they're kind of like the first port of call for people with additional needs as well. I know that that's very important with me because of my independent student learning plan, which is kind of the equivalent to an educational healthcare plan. It's very similar, but for higher education because it stops when you go to university mm-hmm. and the individual student learning plan and DSA come into effect. Um, getting that seen by lecturers and other members of staff that are supporting the individual are very important as well. One thing I have noticed, because I've got friends who are dyslexic as well, is in terms of that, uh, in terms of resources in different colours, some lecturers provide them but others don't and my particular friend who has quite severe dyslexia can't really see the 
the sum of the slides sometimes because they're not in blue or alternative colour arrangements. So in terms of that, that's there's some recommendations and, and, and improvements that could happen. That's a really important point, Jack, and that's the thing you would only get that feedback from listening, you know, mm. to someone mm. who has you know, dyslexia or what their particular needs are. And sometimes I think you know we don't always again you even look at things like technology, presentation of slides. Um, you know, there, there there are all sorts of different color filters that that you know if if you put your slides on Canvas, for example, students can read them with different color filters. So you know, mm. providing you know some simple things actually can make things much more accessible or you can change the font etc but the 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 disability coordinators i i agree that they're absolutely pivotal in in the schools and you know the the things laura mentioned around having part-time disability officers student Mm -hmm. networks staff networks it's really important that we have those people to almost champion the cause but one of the things i'm always concerned about and you know I've I've seen this when I worked in schools as well is that the role of the disability coordinators got to be very much about almost pricking the conscience if you want of everybody you know their colleagues that they work with so it isn't suddenly seen as well you know the disco needs to advise me on you know what to do in this particular Mm -hmm. session it's everybody's responsibility and that that's a tough thing for anyone to do I think that but that's the only way that we'll we'll get you know everybody thinking about the way that they need to provide learning materials in an inclusive way mm. yes mm. and difference is really important mm. isn't it it's something to celebrate and yes. what you were saying Jack around you know pe- people's particular individual needs you know is, is, is a strength it makes mm. you know work environments learning environments much richer by having that difference and diversity yes. as opposed to you know everybody being the same yeah. i mean you know life would be quite robotic and mechanistic <laughs> wouldn't it if we were all the same yes um yeah. so yeah i think that's important absolutely I, and i think if we can just give students and graduates confidence um that actually they are you know sort of a value that they have so much to offer to the workplace a lot of the students and graduates that i um who have a disability or health condition that I speak to they just think oh but how can I tell an employer about this will I even just get go any further in the recruitment process if I if I mention that I have um, whatever and um, so there's that real fear sometimes that just you just think that shouldn't be like that at all and uh, you know kind of we need to think well certainly are there positive elements because of your disability but even if not you have so much to offer regardless of of whatever you want to you know that you can share with, with a an employer about a disability there's so much more to you than that and and, um but um i think it's about awareness of raising for individuals who will be approaching the labor market and and um i do think there needs to be um awareness raising from on the employer side as well it's not just shouldn't just be down Mm. to the individuals having to know how to navigate all of that it it has to be two-sided but perhaps that will come next (laughs) we can tackle that one of the things that i think you know we as a university that we've got to do better we're on a journey is around widening participation and widening access that you know we 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 do pretty well in terms of um you know bringing 
students into the university with with a whole diverse range of needs mm. but if if you track through sometimes you know people with um, complex or well, needs hidden disabilities mm. sometimes the outcomes at the end can be more challenging um, and you know there can be increased um, risk of whether it's academic failure or um, you know, risk of um, not being able to um, maybe get into a successful career. That is part of the conversation we've got to have as well. The first step, you know, the, going back to the social model of disability, of yeah. opening up and you know, giving people um, education and things is important. The next challenge is right. You know, what can, what else can we do as a university? That seems like a really good place to end. <laughs> thanks, everyone, um, for, for that. It was great. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.